0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Greeting God's frozen chosen. (laughs) Now, today is the last Sunday before Lent. It's sort of the end of the Epiphany season. We're sort of turning our gaze now with Ash Wednesday coming up. And traditionally, we read in every one of our three-year cycle, we read the Gospel of the Transfiguration on this Sunday. That's for an important reason. You know what this reminds me, though, when we read Peter's epistle today, 2 Peter, it reminds me, you know, 35 years ago, I lost my mother, and then 30 years ago, my dad. And my dad was in his old age, so he knew the time was coming. And I remember once visiting him, I was living in another state, and I stopped to see him, visited, and he said before he left, he brought me downstairs to his desk. And he pulled out, he went to the left top left drawer and pulled out a manila folder. And he opened it. That was amazing. What he had is everything we needed for his death. He said, Here's everything for the funeral, everything from utility bills to bank accounts to everything you need, you know, for the transition. Since my mom was gone, you know, you're going to have to work this out. So I give you everything, you know, all the information, you don't have to look for anything. But then you're, you're saying something, sort of a goodbye this way, something to remember. He told me, You know, in my life, I've lived a long time. I've seen so many families break up over estates, you know, people fight over stuff. He said, I think it's crazy. He said, but people do that. And he said, I'm counting on you to make sure that doesn't happen in this family. And he had that talk. We found out with each one of the five of us, but no, I'm counting on you to make sure that doesn't happen. So that's the thing. He remembered that if there's one thing I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be gone. Here's what I want you to remember might ask ourselves, what would we say in a similar situation? If we know the ones we loved, we had to talk about something very important in our life we wanted them to learn from, what they were supposed to do, what would we do? Well, 2 Peter, that's what 2 Peter is. 2 Peter actually is the Lord had told Peter that he was got to die. He says, I know that I'm putting off my body, well, the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made this clear to me. Peter says Jesus had told him, you're going home soon. Now, remember, Jesus had told him, I want you to take care of these sheep I loved. I want you to take care of them. So he has to give them a message, something here. So he says, well, I will make every effort, talking about this letter, so that after my departure, you will be able at any time to recall these things. And in that context, He also mentions one defining moment in his life. And it's the actual foundation of all of his hope. This moment is the moment, the defining moment of his life. Now, with Peter, we might ask ourselves, gee, what would that moment be? I mean, Peter had an amazingly rich life with the Lord Jesus. So let's think about it. Peter might say, you know, talking to those he loved, you know, I still remember the day. I was a fisherman. And I had heard this rabbi Jesus preaching and things, but one day, I still can't believe it, he called me to follow him. There's no, no advance warning. He just told me, and somehow I did. I'm still shocked. I don't know where it came from, what I was thinking, but I did. I actually got up and left everything and followed him. I can understand that. Or how about his confession of faith? One day, Jesus had been on, on his tour, as it were, and they stopped, and he said, hey, what are people saying? Who do they say I am? And they start saying, well, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're one of the prophets. No, no. He said, no, no. Who do you say that I am? He said, I got to tell you, this was a surprise to me. It just came out. It was bigger than me. I said, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Even the Lord said, this doesn't come for you from man. My father must have shown this to you. Boy, that'd be something to remember and tell people about. This is, this is the moment for me. But that's not it. How about when Jesus walks on water? I mean, Peter's a very physical person. So Jesus, one night, in the middle of the night, they see him, they're in the boat walking on the water. And Peter being Peter says, can I do that too? Can it? Can it call me out. Sure. He said, I'll never forget. I actually walked on water. Just like Jesus, I walked on water. I'll never forget that. No. Nope. How about Jairus' daughter? This is one of those apparently embarrassing moments. Someone had come to ask Jesus' help. His daughter was sick. And finally, they said, ah, too late. She's gone. You don't have to bother anymore. And then Jesus, instead of t- taking the hint, and I still remember how I felt, that he insisted on going. So he goes there, and even the undertakers, the professional mourners are there. You know, they're already starting. And he's telling everybody she's asleep. I didn't think it could get more embarrassing. That was it. And this, was, this could not have a good ending. But then everything changed. This, this girl was dead. I still don't remember the very words he used Talitha Kumi, little girl, get up. And you'll never believe it. I saw with my own eyes, she got up. She was alive. She was dead. She got up and she's alive. I saw someone raised from the dead. I saw it happen. That's not it. How about seeing the risen Jesus? He saw the risen Jesus and saying, you know, it was really him. The guy died. I saw it. He was dead. He was buried. He was gone. And I know Jesus. I mean, we had every dinner, every breakfast, every lunch for three years. I knew every joke. I knew everything. We, we knew each other. It was him. I'm here to tell you. I saw him and I saw him. It was him. But that's not what he talks about. Finally, you say, well, what about, we were there, He was talking to us, and suddenly he began going, I mean, literally, he was lifted up into heaven. It's like Elijah or something. I mean, those things happened in old times. This happened with us, we saw it. There he goes. He didn't choose any of those. So he probably chose an episode we wouldn't think of very much. What was the great defining moment? It was the transfiguration today's gospel. So we have five important questions to ask ourselves. First of all, what did Peter see at the transfiguration that was so impressive that it changed everything? That of all the moments, this is the moment he'd go back to. What was there about that moment as opposed to every other moment in that life that he would remember it? And also, of all the figures in the Old Testament, why Moses and Elijah? You know, there are a lot of amazing figures in the Old Testament. Why? And the mountain isn't small. You could have a crowd scene. How come just those two? A third question. Why were Peter, James, and John even there? I mean, there are plenty of disciples, and there were 12 apostles, but there were just three of them. Why were they there? No one else was, but they were. Also, the church, in her wisdom, is very careful about how we read the Scriptures together. That's how we read Scripture together. She says this is the perfect time to read this Gospel. This Sunday. No other. Why is this Sunday the Sunday we'll be chosen? And finally, what does this might have changed Peter's life? Could this change mine? How does this actually affect me? I wasn't on the mountain. I didn't see Jesus in glory. How can this affect me in my walk? Well, let's talk about the first question. What exactly did Peter see at the the transfiguration that so impressed him? Well, it's really interesting. One thing when we read the New Testament, at the time of the New Testament, most people could not read and write. And people who could read, it was very hard to get books. So people who wrote, wrote differently than we do. There was no Charles Dickens in the ancient world. People will give you all these scenes and descriptions. People, no, people don't do that in a world like this. So in the New Testament, normally, small details are very important. They tell us something that we just don't go over them, like they're not decoration. Now, this scene appears in the Ma- Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Ma- Gospel of Luke. And each time it is specifically connected to what Jesus had just said before. Specifically connected. Not just put next to it, connected. How so? Today's Gospel, or Matthew's Gospel, says after six days. Today's Gospel says the same thing, after six days. Luke's Gospel says after about eight days. Well, let me explain this, because I'm, I'm a very conservative guy about the Bible. It's not a contradiction. Here's how it works. In many other languages, like French, for instance, is we say if you're going to see somebody a week from now, right? We know what that means. I'll see a week from now. Okay. In a language like French, a lot of language, you say I'll see. The actual theory of the French is I'll see eight days from now. Why eight? Because eight is used as a number for a week because the day you're on counts as one of the days. Today's Sunday, so it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So eight means a week from now. She so said about a week later. It's a way of saying about a week later. The others are being more precise, six days. The others say, well, it's about a week later is what I remember. It's about a week later. Okay. Okay, so what is the connection? What is there that's, that he's saying, make sure this connects to something Jesus just said? What did Jesus said? These, for some people, are some really tr- troubling saying of Jesus. In Matthew, he says, truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's what we read in Mark today. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Luke says, and I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So what did Peter see? He saw the kingdom of God incarnate in the glorified Jesus. You see, Jesus is truly God and he's truly man. And in his incarnation, we would see the man. We can't separate. We would see the man Jesus. He would see the other side. He, this is the kingdom. No, this is truly. He would see the other side. Jesus in his divine glory. That's why he doesn't choose one of the resurrection appearances that didn't have the effect. You see, in the resurrection, what the Lord is trying to emphasize is this is not a vision. He really rose from the dead. So we're going to see exactly the same Jesus we saw. He never stands out. Remember Mary Magdalene. She thinks he's the gardener. The guys on the road to Emmaus just think he's another traveler. Hey, want to come with? Kill time? You know, we have when Jesus is eating breakfast on the lake. No one. Finally, John says... That's the Lord. (laughs) So he doesn't look. He's not glowing. There's nothing special about him because they're trying to emphasize that this is not like visions or something. Truly, we want you to know very concretely, Jesus Christ physically rose. For the man you saw die is physically risen from the dead. But so what remains with him is he had seen more than the human Jesus, the risen. He had seen Jesus in glory. He saw truly God. He also saw him in context. God is Trinity. One God in community, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have Jesus standing there, and the voice says, this is my beloved Son. And then where's the Holy Spirit? The cloud. Remember, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is symbolized by a cloud, cloud or fire. And like what happens when we build the tent of of meeting? How do we know God's in the tabernacle? A cloud fills it with His glory. The cloud comes. When Solomon builds the temple, how do we know God has heard the prayer? He will be in that place. A cloud fills it. So he says, they entered the cloud. The cloud came. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we see God, Jesus not only as divine, but in the context of the Trinity. We see the whole picture. Now the next question is, of all the figures in the Old Testament, why Moses and Elijah taking nothing away from those two? But I must admit, I would have expected Abraham It all starts with Abraham. He's described as the father of all believers. and He's the father of faith. The promise was made to him, not only that he'd be the father of a great nation, but that through him, every nation in the world would be blessed. That's the promise we are all benefiting from this very day. Wouldn't that be beautiful, the fulfillment of that promise in Father Abraham? It's all about that. That's where it starts. Father Abraham. He's not there. What about David. David is his father in the flesh. You know, basically through Mary, he's a human being. David is his father. The promise is made, I'm going to give you a son, and he will sit on your throne, and he will reign forever. Wouldn't it be logical for David to see his son? And David is quoted more in the New Testament than anyone in the Psalms for prophecies of Christ. So wouldn't he be the one to be there? No David insight. What about Isaiah. Some people call him the fifth gospel. We have so many beautiful passages about our Lord in there. So if we're going to choose a prophet who talks about Jesus, what about Isaiah? Where do you get more prophecies of Jesus than Isaiah? But instead we choose Elijah, man didn't even write anything. Okay. Well, he's busy with other things. Okay. Now, a different career path. Okay. So there are two reasons for the choice. And one of them we probably have heard of, we'll talk about it, but another one is actually deeper and, 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 really, and really incredible. The first one is the law and the prophets. You symbolize the law and the prophets were pointing for something and now it is realized in Jesus. Moses symbolizes the law and Elijah is the first of the great prophets. He starts the line of the great prophets. So he's symbolic of the whole line. So we have Moses and Elijah, but there's another reason In all the Old Testament, something Moses and Elijah uniquely share no one else shares it with them. They have a personal vision, not of the angel of God, of God himself in person, a direct personal vision of the living God. And yet there was a limitation. Let's look at Moses' vision. We'll find it in Exodus 33. You know, this is one of those good days. I used to work in an office where the corner office, we talk about weather reports. What that meant is, how's the boss feeling today? Because if there was like, you know, this is, he's in a great mood. This is the day to ask for the raise, to ask for the budget amendment, etc. cetera. Storm, storm warnings mean just stay away with bad news. You know, this is not the day. Well, Moses was having a good weather day. I mean, really good day. And so he actually uses this. And he says, he says, Moses asks a favor. He says, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show favor, mercy on those whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. He said, I want you to see me, but you can't fully see me. You can't see my face and live. So he says, the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me, where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you'll see my back. But my face you shall not see. His glory, his face. So Moses had a vision of God, but he couldn't directly see God. You can't. It's God, is, the word is passing. The Lord is passes by. And he sees him from behind. He catches a glimpse, but he doesn't directly look at God. Elijah similarly has a vision of God. And it says, again, not a surprise, and behold, the Lord passed by. And what does it say? And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Elijah was in a cave. He didn't dare even go out of the cave. When God come, he he can't look God directly. He he puts something over his face and comes to the mouth of the cave. That's as close as he got, but he had to direct God, and God passed by. Well, what happens today? Moses and Elijah see the fullness. They see God standing, and they see him face to face in Jesus. That's why John, you know, John's gospel starts with, in the beginning was the word. And that's meant to remind us of the book of Genesis. He's saying a whole new age has begun. It's the second creation. The first creation in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Now, in the beginning was the word. We're moving, we're reminding us, we're moving forward. And he refers us to Exodus. He refers to this moment in John 1 in verse 14. He said, compared to Moses, he said, we have seen his glory. The glory of the only son from the father. We have, we have seen what Moses hasn't seen. This is John who was on the mountain. We've seen it with our own eyes. We see what Moses and Elijah couldn't see. We've seen it. There's another reason why Moses was on the mountain. You know, before Moses uh, was given a prophecy to tell people, God had said he was going to die. And he had to get people ready. And here's what he says to, uh, to the Israelites. He says, and the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. So we we're promised going to have a promise. Yeah, I said, well, gee, I know that's Joshua, right? Joshua, a pretty good guy. I mean, the Bible says good things. You know, sometimes with Solomon and things, people fall off the wagon. But, you know, Joshua has a really good track record. But the rabbi said Joshua is great, but he's no Moses. Joshua is just simply not equal to Moses. And so the tradition has, like in the New Testament, like in John's gospel, it says, are you Elijah or Or are are you the prophet? It means everyone was still waiting for this prophet that Moses had prophesied, this special, his true successor, his authentic successor. And now Moses is there because there is the successor. How do we know? What does the father say at the baptism? He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What does he say now? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The very words we said in Deuteronomy, this is the one. And also something beautiful you might not realize, you know, we all know that words like Peter and Pedro and Pierre are all the same name in different languages. Joshua, Hebrew Yeshua, is the same name as Jesus. Jesus is a Greek form of Joshua. So Joshua was simply a, a, a if you look in the Greek Bible, it's called the book of Jesus. So basically Joshua is simply the same name. So Joshua was a foretaste of the true, you know, Joshua, which is Jesus himself. And what's the difference? Moses couldn't get into the land, but Jesus could bring the people in. You know, Joshua could bring them into the land. Je- Jesus can bring us into the true promised land. And you know something beautiful here? Who's in the promised land who we never expected to see it has his feet right there? Moses. Think about that. Moses, now, the one who couldn't enter the problem with Jesus, now he himself can enter the land. He's on, he set foot on the holy land, he's there. Question three, why did Jesus choose to have Peter, James, and John present? Well, in the Old Testament, we're told about really serious things in court. You needed two witnesses, ideally three witnesses, three credible witnesses. Okay, these are the three witnesses. But why these three? Because later on, we talk about the transfiguration. Later on, there's something I would call the disfiguration. Jesus at his worst, most unglorious moment to human eyes in the garden of Gethsemane. Do you know what Gethsemane means? It's an Aramaic word. It's really powerful. It means an olive press. You see, we think of the Messiah, we think of the glory, but to get olive oil, you have to crush, completely crush the grape. So that's why it's Gethsemane. This is where the Messiah prepares to be crushed, you know, so he can be this anointing. So what we have here is we have Jesus Oh, Okay, we have this, uh, you know, they're going to see him at his worst moment. He's so frightened, it tells us he's in agony from fear. He's sweating blood, and he's saying, Father, if there's any way around this. This is not the most glorious moment. So they're going to see him at his low point, at his disfiguration. But this will remind them later on, this will give them a context, say, wait a second, we know who this really is. Even though it appears this way, it must be something more. We've seen him in his glory. This is what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is saying Christians are persecuted. They seem there's all a tiny group against the world. The word apocalypse, which is the Greek for revelation, and revelation in Latin means to pull back a curtain so we can see what's really going on. So what's really going on is say you look like you're being persecuted. You're going to lose. Actually, Christ has already won the victory. (laughs) You know, the angels, the the victory is won. This is not a defeat. It's a victory. That's what happened. The curtain is pulled back. They need to have a glimpse of this. So they can get through Christ's disfiguration. They need a glimpse. So why does the church always assign this gospel, or next question, to the, of the Transfiguration to the Sunday preceding life? For two reasons. One is, this is the end of the epiphany season. And the epiphany season is about the manifestations of, of Christ. And the chief manifestation that we celebrate epiphany is actually not the wise men. They're, they're one of the manifestations. The chief one is his baptism. That's where the feast started out, the baptism of Jesus. The you know, Father, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descending upon him. So isn't this the perfect bookend on the other side of another, like the baptism, the Father says, this is my Son. You know, the, Jesus there in glory and the Holy Spirit covering. So we have, it's a perfect bookend to the season. But more important, it prepares us for Lent. Because uh, basically... The theme for Lent is that we, in Lent, the church reminds us that every one of us is called to carry our cross. Actually, that's good to remember because very often we hear a different faith. The faith is that Jesus seeks admirers. And our job as Christians is to say, go Jesus. Wow, that is amazing. Jesus says in a very important part, he actually says in one of the gospels, he actually called everybody, he said, not just the apostles, everybody needs to hear this. He said, if anyone would be my disciple, he has to take up his cross and follow me. Luke says every day. So the cross isn't something to admire. It's something to pick up. And the church reminds us in Lent that we're called to walk with Jesus on the way of the cross. Not to admire. We do admire that, of course. But to walk with Jesus on the way of the cross. How can we do that? Where are we going to find the strength to carry the cross? Well, basically, in Hebrews, we're told that Jesus did so, it says, for the joy set before him. For, and for us, this is what we, we look upon, Jesus in glory, is our hope. This will get us through. We can see this is our Easter. We're, this is where we're going. This leads somewhere. So we have in today's collect, this beautiful collect says, O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain. Listen up. Grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Amen. Now, that collect is based on my favorite single verse in the Bible. And that verse is 2 Corinthians 3.18, where he says of every Christian, he says, we all, no, not some great saints, he said, we all, with unveiled face, are beholding the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. When we look at God, we become like him. God is, like I said, like it's holy, it's like approaching a fire. I used to love skating, you know, in the winter and outdoors and things, and it would get so bitter cold. Now, these, I guess, we still go we always skated. And we have this big place where you go to heat up there, this big roaring fire. And you go in, and when you got close to the fire, you get really warm, even hot, you're, you know, etc. And so the idea is, this is uh, what we're saying, as we look at him, we're transformed. Like, you get nuclear to, to the fire, you become warm and light like the fire. You know, as we look at Christ, we are transformed from glory to glory into that same image. So we can ask ourselves, that's for Everybody. Maybe you say, I don't feel, I I don't think I'm I'm experiencing that. I don't see my life in the faith as growing from glory to glory. What could be going wrong? And I think the lesson from today is maybe we've taken our eyes off Jesus. Because that's how it happens. It's by looking at him that we're transformed. Here's a beautiful story I love. I have the icon of this in my office, my study. I love this. Is this, we talked about when Peter, Jesus is walking on the water. And Peter says, Can I come out too? Call me. I said, Sure. And he's actually walking in the water. But what happens, it doesn't have a happy ending this way, is it suddenly says he saw the wind. Now, you can't see wind, but it means he saw the, he saw the stuff happening. It means he wasn't looking at Jesus, he started looking at the phenomena, like, Whoa, I'm walking on water. You are know, like one of those cartoon characters, you go over a cliff and you, can, you don't realize it. And then suddenly when you look down, you're like the you know, like Coyote or something. Okay. But, you know, suddenly he, um, you, know, you know, Peter is why God, he's actually doing God-like things. He's walking on water until he stops looking at Jesus. That's where the power is coming from. When he starts paying attention. So we start looking not at God, but the, the effect God has on us. My feelings, my inspiration. Suddenly we're not looking at God anymore. We're looking at me. And we start sinking under the waves to keep our eyes on God, not on our spiritual reactions and things, keeping our eyes on God. Now you're saying, if I haven't been doing this, are there some things we could do that could change that? If I'm not keeping my eye, what might be stopping me from keeping my eyes on Jesus in practical terms? Things I might look at this length that I could change. First one is, stop looking sideways. What I mean, this is why Jesus talks about judging. My father of blessed memory, one of, the, mes- one of the, uh, memory, uh, the lessons he gave us, again and again, that I loved, he said, never compare yourself with other people. He said, if you do, you'll be both vain and resentful. Because for everything, whether he, smart, money, anything you think, there's going to be someone who has more of it and someone who has less of it. If you look at people more, you're resentful. How come they're getting... If you look at other people, you're vain. Just look at what God gave you. And isn't it we look at other people, we're always looking, judging, we're always saying, we're like the kid, it's not enough that mom and dad love me it's, I think you love him more. You know, we're counting every Rice crispy they get or something. You know, I think, you know, mom loves you more, you know, instead of looking. And there was a beautiful example of how not to do this. One of my favorite characters, I don't say lightly in the New Testament, probably I'm the only one who feels that way, is the Syrophoenician woman. She was the one who when Jesus, a foreigner, when Jesus came to her, she had a daughter who was suffering from you. She said, please help. And he said, this is not something that would seem encouraging. He said, you can't, take the kid's bread and throw it to the dogs. But what did she say? She said, wow, I don't care, the, the dogs get plenty to eat. Who cares? I'll, we'll have plenty. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus said, wow, great is, woman, great is your faith. You see, very often, like when Jesus went to Nazareth in the synagogue, they were resentful that others than Jews could be saved. You know, we're looking at, all well, times. Like we're the ones to be saved. You can't talk about other people and Gentiles and things. She she doesn't care that the Jews are being served first. That's fine. I don't care. There's plenty for me. That's what it looks like. Not looking sideways. I just look like I don't know. But all I know, all's good with us. I don't resent anything, or you know, and jealous. You know, that's great. All I know, is there's everything to give thanks for me. The second thing is stop looking backwards, and I don't mean from time. I mean very often what we look at is we we think of what we've given up to walk on this road. We keep looking at, you know, my life would be different if I hadn't taken this. Here are the things I could be doing now if I weren't a Christian. And so here's what I could be doing. And we have a beautiful example in Luke's gospel where he shows us two different approaches to exactly the same call. They're put together in Luke's gospel, so we'll get the message. They involve two people described as very rich. The first was a rich young ruler. And he comes and it said Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Imagine Jesus, he loved him. He said, good. Why don't you leave your stuff behind and come follow me? He was invited to join them. We could have churches named after him. We don't even know the guy's name. This guy was invited by Jesus. Come come with me. And amazingly, he looked at what he was giving up, he, he, look, he looked at what he was giving up, not what he's getting. He wasn't looking that God was inviting him to join him. He simply looked at his stuff. How pathetic. How sad. It's like Esau with a bowl of pottage. You've turned your birthright for a bowl of pottage? Even really good pottage. You know, you turned, no. Okay, you, you did that. So we, we, we have that, you know, we're looking at well, what we, now there, what's the other story? The other story is Zacchaeus, who's also described not accidentally as very rich. Zacchaeus, when Jesus says, come down, we're gonna have lunch in your house. He doesn't come say, okay, that sounds good. He runs down and realizes something has dramatically changed. He hears the invitation. And he wasn't even asked to, to follow Jesus. He runs down it and ran, and he ran down. And he, the first thing, Jesus doesn't ask him anything. He says, look, first of all, I've got to make everything right. I'm going to make it right with all the people I've stolen from. But more than that, when I get done with that, half of everything I have I'm going to give to the poor. He's not looking what he gives up. He's looking, at the, he's looking forward, not backwards. Jesus has two parables I love about this. You know, in the Roman world, they didn't have banks. They had bankers, but they didn't have banks. You couldn't have a place to just deposit stuff. So it wasn't hard if you're rich because you have guards and slaves and things. But if you were regular people like us, you had to find a place to hide your stuff. And so people routinely, you'd find places where people forgot. If somebody dies of a heart attack before they tell somebody, and some other the stuff is lost and somebody finds it later on. Under Roman law, the law says, if you own the field, you own what's in it. Permanently, that's it. Once you own the field, you own what's in it. So Jesus says, think about this. What do you think about a guy who finds a treasure in a field that's for sale? Whoa! I know for a sure thing I'll be rich. They're not asking anything. They don't know there's a treasure here. That's just the right price of a field. I, now, I have to come up with the money, but if I do that, I'm going to be rich. So Jesus said, do you think he's, he's hesitating and saying, oh, this is tough. Think of I'm going to have to borrow money and I got to, to spend. All he can see is, look what I'm getting. I'm getting a field with a treasure in it. I'm set for life. He says he runs, sells everything he has and buys the field. He said, what about a pearl merchant who finds this fabulous pearl? And because he's an expert, he knows what that is, and other people don't. He can take advantage of that to buy it at a good price. So it says, does he again, he says, wow, this is, is going to make my career. Does he again hesitate and say, well, I would have to buy it. You know, I'd have to take my money. He said, he, with joy, he goes out, sells everything. So the trouble is, we're looking backward at what we're giving up. We're not realizing what God, Jesus said, I tell you, anyone who follows me, if they give up father and mother, they'll have plenty here and in the age to come. But one thing I really want to put before you as we enter land is something dear to my heart is some of us, the problem isn't that we're looking sideways. We're not looking backwards. We just put on sunglasses. What do I mean by that? Is we basically put limits on what we think God can do for us. We limit God to human possibilities. So we have things like that. I know God can do transformation, but like little mini transformations. He can't really take care of the deep stuff in me, but, you know, he he can polish the surface, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, have yeah, an actually you buff it out the car instead of getting repainted. You know, people won't notice the scratch as much. So we don't allow God to do big things. We just won't even give that chance. And here's why we do it. There's a man I love in Scripture. This is a guy who comes, and his son is having seizures. And Jesus is off praying, so he comes to the apostles. The apostles can't do anything about it. This is, you know, so Jesus comes back and he says, what's going on? And the guy says, well, it's like this. My son has seizures. And your apostles couldn't do anything. If you could do anything, I'd be really grateful. And he said, if you can, everything's possible for you who believe. So here's the thing to focus on. What does he say? He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. He realized, I have faith, but not like that. I do have faith, but not like that. What happens to the son? He's cured. Why? No one has. We don't do anything because we wait until we think we we have the faith to do it. Jesus says faith is like, he says faith is like a a mustard seed. If you have any at all, it's enough. You know, if you have grain like a mustard seed, you'll say this amount of moving, it'll move. So the thing of Jesus is we don't wait till we have enough faith. We use the faith we have. We plant the mustard seed. And when we start doing that and saying, yes, I'll ask Jesus to do dramatic things once I really have my life together. No, no. The place is you take the mustard seed, Lord, I believe. You're going to have to help and then stand back. When God asks you for five loaves, it doesn't matter if 5,000 people. If you give the five loaves, there'll be plenty. We give what we have. We, that, if you have faith, like a mustard seed. So to close, Jesus has asked each and every one of us to take up our cross and follow him. And you know, Lent, the church will remind us in Lent, that's one of the things we do on Ash Wednesday, that we are, this, we're called to the road of the cross. The road to Easter Sunday always passes through Good Friday for each one of us. We'll only find the strength we need by allowing the vision of Jesus, keeping our eye on Jesus and letting that vision, that image, change our life, let God transform us into that image. So what the church on Ash Wednesday is asking us to do, I love this, is step out of the boat. And so on Ash Wednesday, let's step out of the boat and keep our eyes on Jesus and get ready to start walking on water. Amen. Amen.